0: Good morning. Uh, If you have your Bible with you, open up to Romans chapter 5. I'm going to read from Romans 5 here before we pray. And uh, While you are turning there, we are continuing this morning in our series of hard questions surrounding the Christian faith. This week we are going to talk about uh, the question of evil and suffering. Uh, Next week we are going to take up a question that I'm sure interests most of us, which is, what does the Bible say about sex, uh, about uh, the topic of sexuality? And our hope with that is we want to go, definitely we want to talk about the concept of sex being reserved for marriage and how the scripture talks about that, but hopefully go beyond that even and talk about what is Sexuality for? Why did God create it? What is the purpose behind it? So I hope that you guys will come back for that. Um, that will be next week, 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. here. We'll be back on our normal schedule. Uh, but this morning, let's go to Romans chapter 5. I'm going to start in verse 3. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the words we just sang and the truth of the words that we just sang, that even in the midst of trials and temptations and suffering, We can look to you, our God, and know that you are good. Know that you are in control. And we can look to our Savior, Jesus Christ, and know that he suffered so that all suffering will end. And we look with anticipation toward the day when he returns to set everything right again. And in the meanwhile, Father, we pray, give us the grace through your Spirit to trust you. We pray, help us to understand your word this morning. Father, I pray that my words would come from you pray that each of us here would humble ourselves under the authority of your word and what it has to say to us. We thank you, God, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are talking this morning about a subject, what might be called theodicy. Theodicy is a big word that basically refers to how do I reconcile the concept of suffering and evil with the concept of a good and sovereign God? Uh, It's a tough question. It's a question that has really plagued theologians and philosophers and really everybody uh, from probably the beginning of time. Why do bad things happen? If God is there and he's in control and he's good, why do bad things happen? Uh, We faced it perhaps most recently uh, with the tragedy that just happened in Haiti just a few weeks ago. And it's hard for us to even wrap our minds around the concept of an earthquake that uh, destroyed so many lives and uh, physically killed Uh, Now they're saying over 200,000 people. It's hard for me to even get my mind around that. And uh, there are a variety of ways that people have attempted to answer why do these sort of things happen in our world? In the wake of the tragedy in Haiti, uh, one Christian speaker, Pat Robertson, said this about the tragedy. He says this, the Haitian people, they were under the heel of the French, you know, Napoleon III or whatever, and they got together and swore a pact to the devil. They said, we will serve you if you'll get us free from the French. True story. And so the devil said, okay, it's a deal. Ever since they've been cursed by one thing or another. So that's one answer, possible answer to the problem. It's their fault, right? This came upon them because they did something specific and they deserved it specifically. Right now, in response to Pat Robertson's comments, columnist who is not a believer wrote the following in the New York Times. He says, terrible catastrophes inevitably encourage appeals to God. We who are at present unfairly luckier, whether believers or not, might reflect on the almost invariably uncharitable history of theodicy. And the reality that in this context, no invocation of God beyond a desperate appeal for help makes much theological sense. For either God is punitive and interventionist, the Robertson view, or as capricious as nature and so absent as to be effectively non-existent. Unfortunately, the Bible, which frequently uses God's power over earth and seas as the sign of his majesty and intervening power, supports the first view, and the history of humanity's lonely suffering decisively suggests the second. So in other words, either God is in charge and he's bad... Or he's good, but he can't do anything. And he's just left us alone. And we are floating around here lonely. The way that David Hume, the 18th century philosopher, put it was this. Is he willing to prevent evil, but not able? Then he's impotent. Is he able, but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Whence then is evil? Where does it come from? All right, that is the classic question. Why is it here? It's a hard question to get our minds around. We're going to try to attempt to start an answer this morning. Uh, As we were praying this morning, one of the uh, guys in the band said, you know, Matt, I'm expecting you to answer all of my questions this morning. I would said to him, you will go home disappointed, my friend. All right, we're going to do our best, but ultimately we're not going to come to 100% conclusive answers on all of these questions. And when I think about the problem of, of suffering and evil, certainly a tragedy like Haiti uh, weighs heavily on my mind, as I'm sure it does on yours. But to be honest, sometimes it's so large, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around it. And it's far away, right? 200,000 people. I can't even imagine that number in my head. And it's all the way in another country, and I can't see them, and they're not sitting right next to me. And although I want to care, sometimes it's so overwhelming that my mind and my heart kind of shut down. Right? But it doesn't, it, it doesn't do away with the fact that uh, I think all of us still wrestle with this question. Why is there suffering? And it may be on a smaller scale and it may be near to us. Right? I have a friend that just a, a few weeks ago lost her husband. She's 34 years old. She lost her husband of eight years to cancer. That slowly took his life. They've got two little children. Why does something like that happen? Right? That's a difficult question. Where is God in the midst of a tragedy like that? I told some of y'all, our most recent baby, our son, was born and had some problems with when he was born. And we found ourselves in the NICU, the neonatal ICU. and We were there for about six days. And pretty quickly, we, uh, about 48 hours in, we realized our son was going to pull through. He was going to be fine. But as I looked around that NICU, I see these other babies that were there that were born extremely early. 25 weeks instead of 40. They've got this long road ahead of them, and some of them are going to die. You sit there and you look around and you go, well, well, is that fair? Why why that baby, not my baby? Why does this happen to one person and not another? For some of you, uh, this is very real. You're experiencing suffering right now. For others of you... The the worst thing maybe that's happened is they got your taco order wrong at Rose's or something like that, right? You, You haven't genuinely experienced a great deal of suffering. And so this may not be extremely relatable to you this morning. But trust me when I say if you want to walk with Jesus Christ and if you're going to live in this world and engage with this world, it will be a part of your life. For some of you, you're already experiencing it maybe in small ways that seems silly, but they still bother you, right? You're working perhaps full-time and you're going to school and you're doing your best, but you still can't make ends meet. And you look around and you see classmates and friends or roommates who seem to have more than enough and you go, is that fair? Maybe you even feel guilty about asking a question like that because you know my suffering seems so small compared to somebody in Haiti, but it still bothers me, right? Maybe it is, you know, I'm a really... Pretty good person. I've got high standards, I'm moral, I want to be godly, and yet I haven't had a date since, definitely before the Obama administration and sometime going back a long ways, and you go, "Why is that? Why is it that I look around and people who lower their standards and seem to have no moral values, they're having more fun and they're experiencing it seemingly right now, a better life than I am, and they are prospering while I am suffering and lonely. And it hurts. And so you wonder why that sort of thing happens to you. You study incredibly hard, but you make worse grades than the guy that sits next to you that takes no notes. I had a friend like that in college that would sit next to me and no notebook, no book, and just stare off into space and then walk in and make a 95. Well, I would make a 65. Why? I don't know, right? Those sort of things Over time, now it seems silly, but over time you go, all right, I studied, maybe I got the grades, I didn't get the job, and over time you go, I know these things are silly, but they begin to add up and they begin to make me question, where is God? Does he hear me? Does he see me? And if he does, why doesn't he do something? We're going to look at that question from the scripture this morning. Again, uh, we are not going to find a conclusive answer. I'm not going to tell you a verse that says, this is why you're having headaches, but we are going to look at how does God, in his word, respond to this problem of evil and suffering. Believe it or not, uh, the Bible has been dealing with this issue long before most of the theologians that we've ever heard of or read of. Right? God has helped us to understand the world and why these things happen and what we can do about it. And ultimately what we're going to find is the scripture is much more concerned with our response than it is with the question of why. So let's start just simply with the question of why. Why does suffering exist? And again, the question being, if God is good, God is in charge, why does suffering exist? This is a problem, uh, by the way, not just for Christians, but for everybody. It's not just a problem for those who believe in God, it's a problem for everybody. Again, in the wake of the Haiti tragedy, one columnist says this, if there is a God, you have to wonder what he has against poor Haiti. Why is the first and only successful slave revolution in history been followed by 200 years of chaos punctuated by starvation, hurricanes, and earthquakes? But if there is no God, well, what does it matter who lives or who dies? When or where or how? No wonder disaster makes people more and not less religious, and the helpless Haitians sang hymns of praise into the night. The human brain may not be able to reconcile the idea of a benevolent deity with evil and suffering, but neither can it accept the idea that nothing means anything. And that every birth and every death are equally devoid of significance, since this incomprehensible veil of tears is all there is or ever will be. Pure logic must prefer a hopeful absurdity, no matter how vanishingly small that hope, to an absurdity that dismisses life as a futile accident doomed to end in pointless oblivion. So you've got a problem either way, right? If God exists, you have to answer how does he allow suffering? If he doesn't, then nothing means anything, there is no evil. There is no reason I ex- should expect things to be fair. It's a problem for everybody. The great thing is that the scripture begins to talk to us about this problem. And again, it doesn't give us a specific answer of why does my suffering happen now to me and not to you. But it does give us general answers of the way, why the world is the way it is. And the first one is simply this. Humanity is evil. Mankind is evil. Romans chapter 1 verses 28 to 32 though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. All right, in other words, uh, the world is the way it is because mankind has chosen to run away from God. Now, it doesn't mean, again, that any particular instance you can say, uh, this sin caused this problem, but it does mean as a general principle, there is evil in the world because mankind is evil. So we look at a horrible tragedy like the Holocaust, for example. Why did this happen? Evil men chose to harm other evil men. Now, it doesn't answer the question ultimately for us of why does God allow it? Why didn't he step in and fix it? But it does tell us why it happens. Humanity is evil, and a great deal of our suffering is due to our evil or the evil of those around us. And it goes back to the fall. The scripture also says there's suffering because simply the world is broken seem to have left off the verses there. It's Romans eight eighteen to 25. Romans eight eighteen to 25. The world itself is broken. Right, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Here's the idea. Go all the way back to the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. And what happens when Adam and Eve sin? God comes to them and he he pronounces a curse upon Adam and Eve. And then what does he do? He pronounces a curse upon the garden and upon the world. And he says, the world itself will only bear fruit through toil and turmoil. And there's going to be enmity between you and other people and enmity between Even the the creation, even between animals and man. And there's all of this enmity between the earth and mankind and God and mankind and the earth and itself. And so what's happened is the world is busted. It's broken. And it says the creation was subjected to futility. That's literally meaninglessness. Things happen that are meaningless because the world is broken because of the fall. Futility. And what the world is waiting for is a redemption. Redemption. Many of you perhaps uh, have read a book when you were a child called Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. Anybody ever read that book? There was a movie that came out loosely based upon the book. The book, the story of the book is really very simple. It's a grandfather telling his kids a story, right? I hope I'm not spoiling this for any of you. If you haven't read it, you can go check it out this afternoon. I'll try not to give too much away. But grandfather is reading to his kids and he begins to tell a story about a little village where food falls from the sky and it falls in perfect proportions, And they they pick up the food, and uh, they eat the food, and they're healthy, and they're happy. But over time, what happens is the food begins to get bigger and stranger. And there are tornadoes made of tomato sauce that come tearing down into the village, and there are gigantic steaks and meatballs that crush people's houses. And so eventually, they have to move away. And as I read that book, because of my theological background, I can't help but think it's a metaphor for a broken world. God puts Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and he gives them everything they need. Food that grows by itself, animals that get along with one another, and people that get along with one another. And because of their sin, God curses the world until the time in which he will redeem it. And so the world itself is broken. So rain is good and rain comes and it waters the crops and it lets the crops grow. But too much rain kills people. Sometimes you don't get any rain at all. And so the world is broken. It's not the way it's supposed to be. The history of my life, particularly with cars, is one of brokenness, right? Some of you may be able to relate to this. I was talking to one of our interns this morning, talking about the transmission in her car is not working the way that it ought to be. And if you ever had a car that begins to get old, what you find is sometimes it stops when it should not stop. It might do something when it should not. The windshield wipers might come on. The windows might roll down. I had a car that, you know, suddenly things would happen as you're driving. The radio would come on. The car would begin to shake. The car would do something crazy. And just randomness followed this vehicle around because it was broken. And what Romans 8 tells us is that's the way the world is. It's broken. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Now, ultimately, that doesn't answer... First of all, why does God not stop it? And then why does he allow something to happen to one person and not another? I think we get a clue of why God doesn't intervene in 2 Peter 3, verses 8 through 10, which ultimately says this, because the creation was subjected to futility, God is now what? He's waiting and waiting and waiting out of patience so that men and women will come to know Jesus Christ. It says be patient. And although we may not understand it, God's plan is ultimately that he will redeem men and women from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. But in the meanwhile, we live in a broken world. There are some answers in Scripture as far as why evil and suffering doesn't always happen to us. In other words, uh, specifically in my instance, I may be asking, why is it that I'm suffering? And one of the temptations, again, is to say, like Pat Robertson says, you've done something to deserve it. If you've read the book of Job, this was the answer that Job's friends gave him when he began to suffer. You've done something, something wrong. Despite Job's protestations of innocence, they said you've done something. God wouldn't punish you. God wouldn't take things away if you had not done something directly to deserve it. And yet when we look at the scripture, we see that suffering is not always due to personal sin. Let me give you a couple illustrations. John chapter 9, As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So in other words, this man has been blind for his life so that Jesus can heal him and bring glory to God. And we may not always know the reasons, but it is not that this man sinned. It's not always that somebody did something wrong, but instead suffering is a part of the universal condition of mankind. Let me give you another one. This is from the book of Luke chapter 13. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So, In other words, all mankind is under the condemnation of God because of sin. I don't suffer more nor less than you directly because I did something. I was actually in New Orleans a couple of months ago for a conference. And I was walking through the French Quarter with a friend of mine who lives in that area. And as we were walking through, he said, you know, it's really interesting. He said, some people said that the hurricane that destroyed much of New Orleans several years ago, Hurricane Katrina, some people said it was a judgment on the people of New Orleans. And he said, what I don't understand is if it was a judgment on the people of New Orleans, why is the French Quarter still standing? Why is the worst part of the city still standing. Ultimately, because these things don't always happen because somebody did something wrong right now. They happen because the world is broken due to sin. They also don't always happen because God authors evil. In fact, they don't happen at all because God authors evil. It's a popular strain of theology right now that says God essentially created evil, Ordained, authored evil. And yet, when we look at James chapter 1, it says this Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then, desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. In other words, God didn't make me do it. God is not the author of sin, God is good. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. Not always due to personal sin, not because God authors evil, but we do know that God is in control. It's interesting. You get to the end of the book of Job after 30 some chapters of Job proclaiming his innocence, Job's friends saying, you must have done something wrong. You finally get to the end of the book of Job and God finally appears. It says out of the whirlwind and God speaks. And the first thing God says to Job is Job, gird up your loins like a man and I will talk to you. Now, if God says that to you, grab a good chair. And what happens for the next five chapters is God essentially says, Job, where were you when I made the world? Job, have you plumbed the depths of the sea? Job, do you understand everything about how every creature works? Job, do you know all of the things that need to be known in all of the world? Did you create it? Did you control it? Job, then shut up. That's the sum total of God's argument." says, I am in control. I understand more than you. What's interesting in the book of Job is he never answers, why did this happen? He never tells Job that. Instead, he says, Job, humble yourself before me and trust my plan. And consistently what we see is although the scripture gives us general reasons suffering happens, it never conclusively answers, this is why it happens to me. Because it's much more concerned with my response. How should we respond? There's a few things that we see in Scripture. First of all, trust God's character. This goes back to the book of Job, but all the way through Scripture, we see two aspects of God's character that are critical. One, he is good. Secondly, he is sovereign. All right, good meaning that he wants ultimately the best for this world and for the people that he created and the people that he loved. And although in one person's instance, that might mean pain and suffering, ultimately God is working things for the best of all of those that he wants to redeem and bring into his kingdom. He is sovereign. That means he's in control. He's in charge. Nothing escapes his notice. He's not caught napping. He is both of those things. Let me give you a few verses. Psalm 100, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations. James 1, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He's sovereign. He's sovereign. All right, and then a passage you're familiar with, Romans 8, fuses both of those together. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, interestingly, this passage does not mean everything is good. It means that ultimately God's plan, God's ultimate final plan is good for those that he is calling to be his people and for his world. He is working things toward a good plan greater than we can imagine. So we say, you know, what? I don't understand ultimately, but I trust God's character. He's good and he's in charge. Right, you and I could be one or the other of those things at different times. Right? I could be in charge, but not be good. I could be good, but not be in charge. Let me give you an illustration. I was talking to a friend recently. Uh, uh, this lady was telling me that she uh, had a couple of sisters, and then they had one younger brother, a baby brother. And she was saying when they were kids, they loved to try to dress their baby brother like a girl. Now, some of you girls may have done this, and uh, I thought about that, and I thought, uh, somebody gave them control. Somebody gave those girls sovereignty, but they used it in an evil way. <laughs> they used it in a way that was, that was wrong, inappropriate. And then she followed that with, we only actually managed to do it once, and then my dad came home and saw him, and it never happened again. And that was all she said. I thought it's interesting because dad was at work when it was happening, right? And dad's intentions are good. I want to save my boy from this humiliation. But he's not in control. He's gone. He's absent. The one who is in control isn't being good. You or I may find ourselves in different situations where I'm good, but I'm not in control. I'm in control, but I'm not good. God is both of those things all the time. Always in control, always good. And I say, well, I don't understand how that could be and evil and suffering still happen. And ultimately, what we come to scripturally is that God has decided that the best of possible worlds is to say, I want a world where I give human beings some degree of freedom. And they've used that freedom for evil. Yet he says, in my perfect plan, I'm working it so that the death and resurrection of my son, Jesus Christ, restores creation, redeems mankind and ultimately redeems the earth. There's men and women from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation who will worship. So we trust God's character. We remember Jesus' suffering, secondly. Jesus suffered also. You say, well, how does that help me? I found that when I am suffering, one of the worst parts of suffering is loneliness. Small illustration. When I was in college, I found that frequently I would have a final on the very last day of finals late in the day, right? Like 4 p.m. And everybody else has gone home. And there I am on Tuesday night late and I'm sitting in the library and nobody's there. And I'm in pain. And it's hard because I'm lonely. But if it's Monday night and everybody's there and we've got music going and we're studying together, it's just a little bit less horrible because there's camaraderie in knowing that somebody shares my sufferings. What's great is the scripture says, Jesus, the very son of God, shares your sufferings. And not only shares your sufferings, but he suffered in a way that you and I can't even imagine because not only did he undergo physical suffering, but he underwent a spiritual and emotional and mental suffering unlike anything you and I have ever experienced. He was separated from his father. The most intimate, close relationship in history his father that he had been connected to from the beginning of time, his father turns his back. And Jesus finds himself suffering on the cross. And he takes upon himself all of the evil and all of the sins of all of the world. And so in the midst of suffering, we say, I know somebody understands. And because he understands, he cares and he's suffering with me. Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his stripes we are healed. He suffered for us. Maybe that you're here this morning and you don't, you don't even know that. You don't, you've not trusted that. And, and maybe you are suffering or maybe you're struggling. The thing you need to know this morning is that in the midst of your suffering, there's somebody who suffered even worse and is extending to you the opportunity to participate in the life that he provides because he took your sin, he took your suffering, he took your death, and then he rose again and he beat it. So in the midst of suffering, remember Jesus suffered as well can remember several years ago, a uh, cousin of my wife's was standing in his front yard. And uh, he had just gotten married. They had a little baby. And as he's standing in the front yard, sunny day, storm about a mile away, suddenly he's struck by lightning and killed. No explanation. I remember calling a friend, a mentor of mine, and we were on our way to this funeral, and I said, what do I say? How do, you, how do you account for something like that? 20-something-year-old guy, healthy, no problems, not doing anything wrong, standing in his yard, struck by lightning and killed. I remember he said, you can't explain why it happened. You don't know. He said, you point him to the cross, that there's somebody greater who has suffered even greater. Not only that, but has defeated death, has defeated suffering. So we remember Jesus' suffering. Thirdly, we let our suffering hopefully bear fruit. We read Romans 5 at the beginning. Look at it again. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Romans 5 ultimately says that sufferings produce perseverance of character. They make us more like Jesus Christ, and that character produces a hope that we can become like our Savior, and that there is a positive to be. Found in the suffering. It's not that the suffering is good. But that through the suffering, I am transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. It changes me. 2 Corinthians 1 says it allows us to empathize better with those who suffer. Because I have the heart and mind more of my Savior, Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1 says our suffering allows us to glorify and reflect our Savior. And so although it doesn't give us a reason for suffering, it gives us an outcome, that our suffering refines us. And the imagery often that the scripture uses is is like gold, that you put gold that is impure through a fire, you melt it down, you strain out those impurities, and then you reconstitute it as something even purer. And then maybe you pass it back through and you make it purer and purer and purer. And that's what our sufferings do. They transform us into men and women of the character of Jesus Christ. So that in the midst of suffering, we can say, I trust that God can change me into the image of Jesus Christ. And then finally, we remember that suffering will end. Remember that suffering will end. One of the dangers that I think we face as Christians, especially in the United States, is that we have what's called an over realized eschatology. That is, I expect that everything here and now is supposed to be rosy and good without suffering and without problems. And if I'm suffering, I must be doing something wrong. And perhaps I need to pray harder. Perhaps I need to have more faith. Perhaps I just need to ask a little bit more. I can distinctly remember sitting in my office with a student who was absolutely convinced that if you were sick, it was because you had directly violated God in some way. And at the time, one of my closest uh, friends and mentors was sick and dying with cancer. And I remember thinking, uh, if he is being punished... For his cancer, then I don't understand why anybody else is alive. And one of the dangers is that we think everything should be good now, and that Scripture never promises that. In fact, it promises the opposite, that all who want to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer. And ultimately, we have hope that one day the world will be redeemed. Take your Bibles, turn to the book of Revelation. This is where we're going to end, the book of Revelation, chapter 21. So, Way at the back, just before your concordance. Revelation 21, verse 1. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. I was reading a little bit this weekend from a book by William Dembski, and he puts it this way. Redemption in this world is never complete. That's why ultimately we must not look to redemption in the world, but to a final redemption of the world, in which the pain of redemption is once and for all healed, and the tears of redemption are once and for all wiped away. There's coming a day in which the world will be remade. Suffering will end. And that's because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, what he has accomplished. So the scripture doesn't give us ultimately a why, other than some general answers, but it does give us a for what. The reason is so that you and I can be transformed in the image of Jesus Christ, so we can reflect our Savior, so that we can proclaim the mercies of him who has redeemed this world from death and sin. And look forward to the day when he's going to come back. And he's going to make it right. So the challenge for us is we live in between. And the scripture calls us to suffer with an end in mind. So we can glorify our Savior. And again, at times, all of the answers, if you're in the middle of suffering, none of the answers ultimately are going to help. Knowing why might not even, probably wouldn't help. It doesn't ease the pain. If you are repeatedly punching me in the head and you tell me I'm doing this because I don't like you, right? that, that doesn't help. Or, I'm doing this because you need it. That doesn't help. What does help is to know that there's somebody who loves me, who's suffering with me, and is ultimately going to end the suffering because of what he's accomplished. The call of the scripture is to suffer with our eyes and our heart and our minds looking toward the one who's one day going to bring it to an end. Would you guys pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord, we confess that at times we doubt your goodness. We doubt your sovereignty. We pray let us trust you. Knowing that in Jesus Christ, suffering has been defeated and we now just await the consummation of the new age in which you will redeem us once and for all. Father, in the meanwhile, let us suffer well so we can testify to the glory of Jesus Christ. Let us live like the men and women that we read about in Scripture who are willing to go even to their death if it would glorify Jesus Christ, who are willing to suffer the loss of their homes, their reputations, their careers, if it meant the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's follow their example. Father, we pray you would provide us comfort and allow us to comfort others as well. I pray be with us as we go out this week. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. See you all next week.